This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and welcome to WBEZ's special live coverage of Governor J.B. Pritzker's State of the State and Budget Address. We're just minutes away from him taking the podium at the Illinois State Capitol. Now, last year's speech was done virtually due to the pandemic, but governor, the governor's back in person this year. He's expected to lay out his plan for $1 billion in tax cuts to help boost the economy. Joining me now for more on what we can expect from the governor today is WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Hey, Dave. Hey, good afternoon, Sasha. Good afternoon, Dave. Tell us what's on the agenda for Pritzker's State of the State address today. Well, I mean, look, Illinois is known really historically for having just lousy finances. And and this year is going to be different, it sounds like. I mean, the governor's administration, uh, they've they've put together this package here that, that they're calling the, the most stable uh, uh, budget, uh, the strongest state budget in memory is the way they're putting it. So, I mean, you know, there, there's a whole slew of things here that they have on the table that I think – you know, are, are going to mean something to people, mean something to voters potentially in an election year where J.B. Pritzker is going to be on the ballot against uh, a well-funded Republican candidate. All right. And I think now, Dave, uh, we've got the governor actually approaching the podium and he's uh, just about to begin his speech. So we'll go ahead and play that analysis live. Thank you very much, everyone. Leaders, members, lieutenant governor, First Lady. Joining us today are a special group of distinguished guests, teachers, doctors, nurses, and first responders. And I want to sincerely thank all of you for joining me under the dome of the old Illinois State Capitol building. So many of you have showed up to work in person during the worst health crisis in our state that our state has ever seen. I figured the least I could do as your governor was brave a snowstorm to deliver the State of the State Address. One year ago, I delivered a speech a few miles from here in the Orr Building at the State Fairgrounds as members of our Illinois National Guard readied the facility to serve as a mass vaccination site. Like all of you, I had hoped that that was the beginning of the end of one of the most challenging times our state and our nation has ever lived through. But it wasn't the end. We continue even now to battle an invisible enemy that has challenged all our institutions and forced every single Illinoisan to confront deeply held convictions about family, work, education, health care, science, and our collective responsibility to one another. It would be the most human of tendencies to obsess during this time over one question. Why? Why are we going through this? Why did it start and why won't it end? Why is this the slice of history that we're being asked to carry? The answers to those questions remain elusive. And we cannot allow their pursuit to distract us from another, more essential question. How will we distinguish ourselves and how will history remember us during this time? According to legend, the famed cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead once delivered a lecture to her students that started with this question to her class. What was the earliest sign of human civilization? The answers her students provided are what you might predict. Tools, pots, weapons, iron, agriculture. 
But Meade shook her head no to all these answers and instead held up a healed femur, a leg bone that had been broken and mended. She explained that this healing was the first sign of true civilization because it meant someone had looked after this person, given them food, shelter, and rest at great personal sacrifice. Meade's argument was that true human civilization arrived when our ancestors chose to look out for one another despite personal risk or inconvenience. The question of what we owe our fellow human beings has been front and center in my mind over the last several years, but most especially the last 12 months. And I keep returning to Margaret Mead's simple lesson, that the measure of any society is how willing we are to care for those who need us. The COVID-19 pandemic has presented us with a challenge the likes of which we have not seen in generations. It has brought families to their breaking point, with parents especially, struggling every day to try and make the right decisions for their children, as well as for their own parents and grandparents. COVID has forced a true reckoning about what it means to work and what it means to live, no matter what kind of job you're holding down. Every worker in every profession is demanding a rethinking right now of the sacrifices that they're being asked to make. Every working parent is navigating how to hold Zoom calls with a toddler screaming in the background or facing impossible choices between going to their hourly job or staying home with a sick child. And I talk to so many entrepreneurs who want to do right by their workers. At the same time, they have to keep up with their competitors in order to survive. But no one in our state, no one, has borne a greater burden in the last 12 months than the nurses and doctors and first responders who have had no respite from the unrelenting agony of the most brutal parts of the global pandemic. To the Illinois medical community, I know that every career in healthcare begins with someone who wants to help sick people get well. I know that during the months and years that you practiced and trained for the job you hold now, you had to come to terms with the idea that you couldn't save everyone, that some people would be too sick, some cases too hard to solve. I know you learned to cope with that inevitability by discovering the balance between joy and grief. I know that underneath that balance, you felt the world owed you a promise to never let one side of that scale get too overwhelming. And I know that you feel like that promise has been broken, that too much grief has robbed the profession you've devoted your life to of all of its joy. I know that as you have watched your hospitals fill with patients once again these last two months, that there is a small but persistent voice inside of you asking you how much more you can take. I wish I could lift this burden from you. I wish it with all my heart. But in the absence of the ability to do that, I feel it important to stand here in the most visible public forum I can think of and say, I see you. Our entire state sees you. And while we can't take away your burden, we can directly acknowledge it and assist you in carrying some of it. And as governor, I can offer you my most deep and heartfelt thanks 
on behalf of a grateful state. One thing we can all do right now is continue rising to the challenge of combating the pandemic head on. And we are. A larger percentage of Illinoisans have been vaccinated than in any other Midwestern state. Our state has led with equity and with the highest regional vaccination rates for our black and brown residents. We are the leader in vaccinating kids 5 to 17 years old. We've held over 7,350 mobile vaccination clinics at churches and senior centers, schools and day camps and YMCAs to make getting the vaccine easier for every Illinoisan who wants it. The battle to keep people safe from the virus isn't over, though we are more experienced at managing through it. When the surge came last fall, we put our masks back on, and it helped keep our hospitals from being overrun. To protect the most vulnerable people in our state's care, I required vaccinations at state-run congregate care facilities, including our veterans' homes and homes for people with developmental disabilities. Our schools have remained safe and open. Of the more than 850 public school districts in our state, fewer than a dozen have had to take an adaptive pause recently because of COVID-19. That's because we have three tools that we know work, masks, testing, and vaccines. And I have not hesitated to use these tools and make them available to schools so they can maintain in-person learning for Illinois' children while protecting parents, teachers, and staff. In fact, we set the national standard for how to safely keep kids in school when the CDC adopted our Illinois test-to-stay model. The virus has remained a threat for far longer than any of us would like. But we continue to find ways to live our lives and to protect the vulnerable all at the same time. The pandemic recession has taken an enormous financial toll on workers and businesses. Government must continue to do everything possible to help people recover. With all our efforts over the last two years, city, county, state, federal, we're seeing signs of progress every single day. Our investments in working families and small businesses are paying off. Since the bottom of the pandemic recession in April of 2020, we have added 600,000 jobs and grown the overall state GDP beyond pre-pandemic levels. Illinois' job growth now outpaces the national job growth. Wages have increased for working-class families, and jobs are available for workers of nearly every skill. Workers have bargaining power like never before, and businesses have applied ingenuity and creativity to rebuild and grow and are making Illinois one of the best places to do business in the entire country. Our recovery is happening. You're listening to 91.5 WBEZ as Governor J.B. Pritzker delivers his State of the State Address in Springfield. ...and the communities they serve. It's also happening because we've focused on providing as much stability as possible for small businesses and workers and families here in Illinois. To succeed, we've had to acknowledge that working parents need child care. In the early months of the pandemic, we launched a child care support program that is now nationally recognized, delivering relief grants to provide a safe environment for caregivers. 
and allowing childcare providers to stay afloat during the worst of this global health crisis. We've been awarding retention bonuses to Illinois' childcare workers. We're providing out-of-work parents with three months of low-cost or free childcare so they can look for a job without worrying about their children. And then we partnered with the General Assembly to award nearly a billion dollars in grants to more than 12,000 small businesses, covering every sector of the Illinois economy, especially those that were left out of the federal PPP program. Because of it, tens of thousands of jobs in every part of our state were saved. We also needed to keep struggling families from being forced out of their homes by the pandemic recession. So with the help of Representative Delia Ramirez and Senator Omar Aquino, the Illinois Housing Development Authority went to work, providing some of the fastest relief for landlords and tenants among all the states. More than a billion dollars has kept renters and homeowners from losing their housing, with hundreds of millions more to support them in the first half of 2022. A prohibition on COVID-related evictions Utility shutoffs and vehicle repossessions protected those suffering pandemic-related hardships. Throughout this deadly pandemic, I've governed with a consistent philosophy. Protect the most vulnerable. Offer simple and straightforward help through the hard times. And make Illinois an example for the rest of the country for how to manage through the crisis. Because of the amazing residents of this state, we have been able to do just that. Within weeks of being sworn in as governor in 2019, I appeared in front of the General Assembly for the very first time with a dire report on the state of the state's finances and an overview of the true fiscal wreckage left for us to clean up. Back then, we had a $3.2 billion deficit. We had $7.9 billion owed in unpaid bills. The state had doled out over $1.2 billion in late payment penalties. We had suffered an astonishing eight credit rating downgrades in the years 2015 to 2017, and our credit hovered at just one notch above junk status. I made a promise that day. I said, Budgeting will not be done anymore by taking the state hostage or by court orders or consent decrees and continuing appropriations, but instead by debate and compromise and a return to regular order. We will work together earnestly to solve the state's problems. We will disagree at times on important things, but the work we all came here to do will get done. I believe that if we're ever going to fix what is broken in the American political system. It starts with politicians keeping their word. So let me offer an update on the promise of fiscal responsibility that I made to you three years ago. After decades of credit downgrades, by the end of my second full fiscal year in office, Illinois received two credit upgrades, the first upgrades the state has received in over 20 years. The massive bill backlog that contained bills past due for as long as 500 days 
now contains only unpaid general funds bills averaging 15 days old. And that $3.2 billion structural deficit, well, today I'm pleased to announce Illinois will end this fiscal year with a $1.7 billion surplus, the first of its kind in more than 25 years. Now, I know that the same tired old characters who are always so desperate to badmouth Illinois will falsely attribute our fiscal success to the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. As usual, they're wrong. Let me set the record straight for you. Our state budget surpluses would exist even without the money we received from the federal government. Painstaking work has been done in coordination with the General Assembly and Comptroller Susana Mendoza over the last three years to diligently and meticulously reverse the irresponsible decisions of the past and ensure that responsible budgeting would become the rule, not the exception. What a self-indulgent position the cynics take, always opposing what's in the best interests of the people of Illinois if they think it will advance their political standing. It's a curious position, but then again, there have long been people in Illinois state politics who have cared more about promoting their own propaganda than they do about what's best for your pocketbooks. During this budget cycle especially, seats at the grown-up table will be off-limits to those who aren't working in the public's best interests. Back in 2019, I promised you that we would not allow political posturing by those people to again take the state's finances hostage. I ran for governor to move beyond that, and we have. If you don't believe me, take it from the credit rating agency, S&P. In their announcement last year of Illinois' credit upgrade, they said the political gridlock that stymied governance a few fiscal years ago has dissipated. Look, the actual work of managing Illinois' state finances is decidedly unglamorous. It is hours of hammering away at calcified problems of the past, persistently reducing liabilities on our state's balance sheet, finding and implementing efficiencies and savings, upgrading systems that track expenditures, and asking every government employee to be a partner in smart budgeting. It's not partisan work. It's not political work. It's just hard work. It requires resisting the temptation to let political expediency take over our budget process, and it demands discipline and a commitment to do what's right. And that is what my administration and a majority of the General Assembly have been committed to doing, no matter how difficult the circumstances or how unprecedented the times. So let's talk about good governance and what fiscal responsibility looks like. During those first few terrible months of the COVID crisis, when it was unclear whether the bottom would completely fall out of state revenues, we borrowed $3.2 billion from the federal government so we wouldn't wonder if the state could meet the needs of people who were suffering. Not a chance I was going to allow an interruption of vital services by our hospitals or let our schools close for lack of PPE. And as soon as our state revenues rebounded, paying down our borrowing was among my highest priorities. We paid our debt back nearly two years early, saving taxpayers $82 million in interest costs. 
Then there were the short-term borrowings that date back to the budget crisis five years ago. The bill backlog that at its height reached nearly $17 billion and the $1.5 billion borrowed from the state treasury have now been paid down. I believe in paying our debts. Each year I've served as governor, our state has met its pension payment obligations. But when we are able, I think we ought to do more than just pay the minimum. That's why I propose making not only our minimum pension payment this year, but also an additional half a billion dollars. If approved by the General Assembly, this will be the first time since the beginning of 1994's pension funding ramp that we will reduce our pension debt by more than our required contribution. I'm asking Democrats and Republicans to work together with me to get this done because it will save taxpayers $1.8 billion in interest payments over the coming years. For longer than I can remember, the pension naysayers have told us we should ignore the Constitution and the protections it provides and instead break our promises to retirees. I won't do that. Instead, we are tackling our pension problem with responsible pension investment decisions, solid investment returns, and expansion of the pension buyout program. As a result, pension liabilities are down and pension assets are up. You're listening to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker deliver his State of the State address in Springfield. They're on 91.5 WBEZ. Pension payments as a percentage of our budget have finally flattened and are projected to decline. Great news for pensioners and taxpayers alike. For years, Illinois has been without any financial cushion in the event of a downturn. And 22 months ago, we experienced how debilitating that could be. Now that we've paid down our bill backlog and consistently balanced the budget, it's time to begin restoring our state's long-neglected budget stabilization fund, also known as the Rainy Day Fund. Right now, the average state can run for 29 days on its Rainy Day Fund. In Illinois, we can run for 15 minutes. I'm proposing that we set aside $600 million for the fund this year, plus another $279 million next year. The past few years have shown us that rainy days do actually arrive, and it's time to begin rebuilding protections from future fiscal calamities. At the beginning of my term, I tasked Illinois Central Management Services with taking a comprehensive look at all real estate holdings that Illinois has accumulated over the years and to make an honest effort to eliminate the waste inefficiency that had been previously overlooked. As a result of their work, I made the decision to consolidate multiple long-term leases in downtown Chicago, saving taxpayers an average of approximately $20 million a year for the next 30 years. Then there's the James R. Thompson Center, the least efficient building owned by our state. For 20 years, governors have talked about selling the building. One even pretended to sell it in two of his budget proposals. I decided I would just get to work and actually sell it in real life. A private buyer now has offered to purchase it by assuming several hundred million dollars in liabilities and paying the state $70 million in cash. Altogether, the net savings for state taxpayers approaches three-quarters of a billion dollars, 
and the city of Chicago will get a brand new revenue-producing, renovated property in the heart of downtown. Overall, with this real estate restructuring, we will have reduced Illinois' government office space by over 640,000 square feet by 2024 and lowered the cost of leasing Chicago office space from $41 a square foot to $20 a square foot. This is an example of how we're bringing operational improvements to state government to reduce waste, inefficiency, and liabilities. Here's another example of past mismanagement that we're repairing. College Illinois was a program started in the 1990s to help parents pay for college for their children. The idea seemed simple. Illinois residents could purchase college tuition at current rates, and that money would be invested and grow to cover the eventual costs of their children's college education. Over 70,000 Illinois families took advantage of this opportunity. But 25 years later, the program was underfunded by nearly 30%, leaving parents holding the bag for a promise unfulfilled by state government. That's not right. So my budget proposes to pay off that unfunded state liability in full. Parents will sleep better at night, and it saves an additional $75 million in future taxpayer liabilities. Responsible fiscal management is yielding substantial savings, unburdening our state from the anchor that has weighed us down for far too long. So as we move on to tackle the questions of what vital current priorities our government should fund, know that we start from a place where our bills are paid, our most pressing short-term debts are nearly gone, and our most critical long-term financial liabilities are in the best fiscal shape they have been in since the turn of the century. The proposed 2023 budget I have submitted today includes substantial increases in the highest yielding investments that we can make, early childhood, K-12, and higher education. Notably, there's a $350 million increase for the K-12 evidence-based funding formula, driving critical resources to our state's most underfunded schools. I've also increased early childhood education by $54 million, which together with the $200 million investment in upskilling our early childhood workforce will go a long way toward meeting our goal of making Illinois the best state in the nation to raise young children. In years past, higher education had become an afterthought in our state budgets. Because of the disinvestment, post-secondary education became more and more expensive for students and their families. That's why, at the beginning of my term, I pledged to do three things to address this problem. Increase MAP scholarships by $200 million. Get more Pell Grants and low-cost federal loans for Illinois students and increase direct support for institutions of higher learning. With this FY23 budget proposal, we will have achieved all three during my first term in office, with substantial increases in MAP grants, community college and university operational support, and job training investments. Importantly, the cost of pursuing higher education in Illinois is finally going down, and we're opening the door to a brighter future for more Illinoisans. 
I'm also asking the General Assembly to broaden the allowable uses of MAP scholarships for career training programs in critical industries like healthcare. This small change will open more training and education opportunities for thousands of Illinoisans, and it will put people to work addressing the critical healthcare workforce shortage. Our healthcare institutions and healthcare workers need help. That's why this proposed budget creates the Pipeline for the Advancement of the Healthcare Workforce, or PATH, program. The goal is to model this program after the highly successful Workforce Equity Initiative championed by State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth. The PATH program will invest $25 million in our community colleges to remove barriers for recruitment and training of new frontline healthcare workers. My budget also proposes to invest new resources in nursing scholarships and loan forgiveness programs. And finally, I'm proposing to eliminate licensure fees for 470,000 nurses, physicians, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, respiratory care workers, social workers, and others in the coming fiscal year. Let's recognize the burden our healthcare workers have borne and give them a much needed reprieve. Aggressively protecting and supporting vulnerable children and families is a high priority for us all. Since coming into office, I've substantially increased the budget at the Department of Children and Family Services to reverse the damage of the prior administration, bringing on hundreds of new staff, retraining every DCFS worker and manager, allowing our private partners to increase wages and helping them make a dent in the hundreds of shelter beds lost under the prior administration. This year, as the agency continues to battle pandemic-era worker shortages and increased caseload, I propose we add another $250 million to hire more child welfare workers and increase the number of safe and supportive settings available to care for vulnerable children. Nobody has escaped the isolation, burnout, and trauma of the past two years. Now more than ever, it's important to invest in behavioral health. That's why I will be appointing a chief behavioral health officer to oversee and coordinate behavioral health services directly with the governor's office. Behavioral health is an area where Representative Deb Conroy is a real leader. And with partners across the rotunda like Senators Sarah Feigenholz and Laura Fine, I'm confident the chief behavioral health officer will succeed in streamlining and coordinating these services across state agencies. And we can't talk about health in this state without recognizing the tremendous leadership of Lieutenant Governor Stratton to expand She has worked to expand Alzheimer's awareness and bring the world closer to eradicating this heartbreaking disease. Over the summer, we made Illinois the first state in the nation to require regular Alzheimer's diagnosis training for all licensed adult-serving healthcare professionals. Building on that progress, today I'm proposing an expansion of Illinois' Alzheimer's outreach, research, care, and support. Thank you, Governor Stratton. With the state and the nation experiencing a rise in violent crime, 
Addressing public safety requires major investments. But too often, those elected officials yelling the loudest about public safety concerns are also those voting to defund government budgets. Crime is a complex and multifaceted problem to tackle, and it's cynical and counterproductive to simply shout, lock them up, while providing fewer resources to the people and programs that prevent crime in the first place. A truly effective approach to tackling crime involves both short-term and long-term investments and a commitment to see those investments through. Let's start with this. If we want to reduce crime, we have to solve crimes. That's why I reestablished the Division of Criminal Investigations when I first took office. It's why we're building a new state-of-the-art crime lab near Joliet and opening another one in Decatur. My proposed budget continues to increase the number of Illinois State Police forensic scientists and evidence technicians. And we're already succeeding in one important area. We've substantially reduced the backlog of DNA and other analyses on evidence in sexual assault cases. As a result, victims and survivors will finally get the justice they deserve. This is 91.5 WBEZ, and you're listening to Governor J.B. Pritzker deliver his State of the State and Budget Address in Springfield. year since I took office, but they need even more support. Under my predecessor, their ranks had been severely depleted to only 1,625 troopers, down 31 percent from its peak. So every year, I've worked with the majority in the General Assembly to rebuild the ISP. On top of the hundreds of sworn officers we've hired already, the FY23 budget provides resources to add the largest number of state police cadets in any single year. <laughs> Victims and witnesses need to feel safe if they're going to be willing to come forward and identify violent criminals. Nearly a decade ago, Speaker Welch and Senator Van Pelt led the creation of the Gang Crime Witness Protection Program. It was intended to provide resources to prosecutors and to the Attorney General to pay for the protection of victims and witnesses who are assisting in the prosecution of gang violence perpetrators. Disappointingly, the program was never funded. Today, I'm proposing that we immediately authorize $20 million of an investment in it. If we want people to speak up without fear of intimidation, we need to give law enforcement the resources they need to protect victims and witnesses that want to do the right thing. To prevent violent crime and reduce the direct burden on police, Illinois is awarding grants to organizations that implement data-driven, community-driven violence prevention efforts. This budget proposal advances our $250 million multi-year investment in crime prevention in the Reimagined Public Safety Act. From the time I became governor until this current fiscal year, we more than doubled the funding for violence interruption, diversion, and youth employment programs to $517 million. I'm proposing we increase that appropriation to $832 million. And as an additional relief for police departments, this budget provides greater funding for police body cameras. <laughs> S- 
Smart investments in frontline personnel, in protecting witnesses, in community renewal, in mental health, in economic opportunities, and in solving crimes are the best ways to reduce violence on our streets. The 2023 budget continues providing direct grants for thousands more small businesses supporting their recovery. We're extending the Rebuild Downtowns and Main Streets program to revitalize community business districts across Illinois. And on top of that, I propose suspending license fees for more than 23,000 restaurants and bars, bringing some additional relief to an industry hard hit by the pandemic. Along with this small business support, I'm calling on the General Assembly to renew the Economic Development for a Growing Economy, or EDGE, tax credit program, which is set to expire in June. EDGE is one of our most effective tools to grow and attract jobs. Right now, everyone is feeling the crunch of rising prices for goods and services. The higher cost of even basic necessities is making it harder to make ends meet. Whether it's supply chain interruptions or increasing oil prices, inflation is squeezing Illinois families. Government ought to do more to ease the pain and put more money in the pockets of hardworking Illinoisans. Our budget success gives us the opportunity to do just that. Therefore, today I'm proposing the Illinois Family Relief Plan to provide immediate assistance to help families fight inflation. First, let's freeze the gas tax for the coming fiscal year. Back in 2019, working with the General Assembly, we passed a historic bipartisan infrastructure improvement plan. Since then, countless roads and bridges across the state have been repaired and improved to the benefit of local communities and businesses, and the federal infrastructure bill passed last year in Congress has provided additional funding. Because the Illinois Department of Transportation has been efficiently completing projects on time and on budget, it has collected enough infrastructure dollars already to allow us to freeze the gas tax for a year without affecting any of our road projects. It will bring immediate relief at the gas pump and still allow us to upgrade our infrastructure. Another place where families are getting hit hard by rising costs is at the grocery store. Access to affordable food is fundamental to the American promise, but with the price of milk and eggs and bread going up, pocketbooks are being pinched. We can afford to suspend the state tax on groceries in the coming year and have the state make up any lost revenue to local governments so we can bring some relief to families at the checkout counter. Finally, local property taxes have long been an unsustainable burden for homeowners across Illinois. Local governments who impose property taxes have received an unprecedented influx of cash from the federal government in the last year, and an additional $1.1 billion in annual support due to the actions taken by the state. It's time for every local taxing district to take a long, hard look at reducing the burden of high property taxes they impose on their local residents. And at the state level, we can also take action. I propose immediate property tax relief funded by the state surplus. If we double the property tax deduction for Illinois homeowners, we can bring relief to nearly 2 million Illinois taxpayers.
The Family Relief Plan can't solve all the challenges of global inflation, but we can do our part to alleviate some pressure on Illinois' working families. When I was first elected, I pledged to budget responsibly and with a focus on reducing burdens on working families. I'm proud to say this proposed fiscal year 2023 budget plan does just that. With all the challenges we've overcome, with all the work it took to get here, with all the things that we may face in the future, here's one thing I know for sure. Illinois is the best place to live in the entire nation. Our history is more interesting, our food more flavorful, our businesses more innovative, our workers more industrious, our schools more distinguished, our culture more illuminating, and our people more diverse and intelligent and creative than any other state in this great wide country of ours. Contrary to those folks who spend their time orbiting Illinois politics just spelunking for misery, our state has a lot to be proud of. We're modernizing our roads and our bridges, our schools and our broadband. Thanks to Rebuild Illinois, we've repaired over 3,300 miles of roads and 320 bridges in just the last two and a half years. We now have the number one ranked infrastructure in the country. We've become a national leader in addressing climate change, even being recognized on the world stage at the United Nations Climate Conference in Scotland last year, when Illinois became the first Midwest state to require 100% carbon-free energy by 2045. We acted swiftly and boldly last fall to reap the potential financial benefits of the new energy economy by passing the REV Act, providing attractive incentives for electric car manufacturers to set up shop in Illinois and bring new jobs to our communities. We've also made it less expensive for consumers to buy and drive an electric vehicle by offering $4,000 rebates to consumers and incentivizing the build-out of charging stations statewide. At a time when people need reliable health care more than they ever have before, we provided $3.8 billion to hospitals serving Medicaid patients to increase access in underserved communities. We made Illinois among the first states in the nation to require that insurance insurers cover substance use programs and mental health treatment. We made pandemic-era telehealth access permanent. We capped out-of-pocket insulin costs. And we made it harder for insurance companies to discriminate against those seeking fertility treatments. And at a time when politicians in some places have dipped their toes into the waters of sedition, or pulled chairs up for the ghosts of Jim Crow, or spurned the fires of educational curiosity in favor of book banning, or are telling women you have to take your reproductive health choices back to the 1950s, at a time when some would question the very foundations of science and medicine, at a time when some would condemn simple acts of courtesy and kindness, like wearing a mask so that fewer people would die. This government, in this state, said, not here.
you see, in Illinois, our elections are protected because we're not scared of more people voting. In Illinois, we care about expanding the freedoms and opportunities for our black and brown residents. In Illinois, we built a firewall around the freedoms of every woman in this state, protecting the right to choose in our laws and prohibiting the Supreme Court from taking it away. In Illinois, we believe all workers deserve a real living wage and the right to organize. In Illinois, we are not afraid of our history. After all, this country's past, some of its lowest and its highest moments, runs straight through this state capitol. Abraham Lincoln, who once stood on this very spot under this dome, once said, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. In Illinois, we believe that the best thing that we can do in difficult times is look out for one another. Leadership in times like these does not dance idly wherever the wind might blow. Leadership in times like these means having the courage to stand on deck while the waves crash around you and you keep the ship pointing toward home. The din of a crisis is when a carnival barker's shout becomes a whisper soft enough to find the ears of the sick or worried or grieving or scared. And the poison they worm into the hearts of the vulnerable is that it's those people, the ones who live in that city, the ones who worship at that altar, the ones who were born in that place, who are responsible for the hard times. It's a playbook as old as the play, and it's that kind of thinking that I'm asking you to reject in this moment. I know how hard everything feels right now. I know that for the last two years, it seems like we have all been reaching for the shadow of a former life. You've been asked to sacrifice more than is fair, and we're all worried our hearts have forgotten how to find hope. But I'm here to tell you that they haven't. I know that because Illinois reminds me every single day of her kindness and her hope. I see it in tired smiles, in tidy laughs, in the faces of parents protecting their children and in children protecting their parents. I glimpse it in the eyes that peek out over masks nodding at me quietly and pulling me aside to tell me about a food kitchen they're trying to help or a blood drive they're trying to publicize or a family they're trying to lift up. I told you when I was elected that I would be a relentless optimist for this wonderful place that we call home. I didn't tell you that I would be an optimist only if times weren't hard. I didn't tell you that I would be an optimist only if the challenges were easy. I didn't tell you that there was a limit to the hope that I could find for this state because there's not. Illinois has never let me down, not once not even in some of her darkest hours. Maybe the clarity that grief and struggle bring will allow us to cast off the old parts of our lives that never served us well to begin with. Maybe the resilience we've found facing a once-in-a-generation challenge 
has opened a path to new and better things. Maybe it's time we remember what Margaret Mead was trying to teach her class during that lecture long ago. That who we are is measured by how we care for those who need us. And that we, shouldn't, we wouldn't be standing here if that simple ancient value wasn't deeply ingrained into our very existence. So Illinois, the state of our great state is strong, unbreakable, and enduring. It is sustained every day by the deep, overwhelming kindness of its people, by the hopes of its leaders, and by our common commitment to face an uncertain tomorrow with the strength built by surviving our yesterdays. Thank you, and God bless you. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Now, minutes ago, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker gave his annual State of the State address in Springfield. Now, for the better part of an hour, the governor laid out his plan to boost the economy and help residents recover from the pandemic. The proposed 2023 budget I have submitted today includes substantial increases in the highest yielding investments that we can make. Early childhood, K-12, and higher education. Now that we've paid down our bill backlog and consistently balanced the budget, it's time to begin restoring our state's long-neglected budget stabilization fund, also known as the Rainy Day Fund. Since the bottom of the pandemic recession in April of 2020, we have added 600,000 jobs and grown the overall state GDP beyond pre-pandemic levels. Joining us now to help break down the main takeaways from the speech is WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sasha. So your reaction to the governor's speech, what would you think? Well, I mean, you know, he, he had a lot to say in, in 45 minutes or so there. And, and I think what you have to look at this speech as is really sort of a playbook for how he's going to conduct his reelection campaign, because he hit on so many points that I think he's going to try to present voters you know, in, in speeches, debates, and certainly all the campaign commercials that we're going to be blanketed with in the coming months. You know, he hit on uh, the, the main point, I think, was how, you know, he, he contrasted himself and his fiscal policies with what preceded him. And, and we don't have to go back far to remember that we went two years in Illinois without a state budget under his predecessor, Republican Bruce Rauner, and, and the fights that he was having with House Speaker uh, Michael Madigan. I mean, it just froze everything in place, and it caused our, our bill, you know, unpaid bill backlogs to increase and our bond ratings to decrease. And, and today he laid out this plan that basically said, look, we, we for the first time in recent memory, actually are flush with money. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he laid out a whole series of things here, election year goodies, really, for, for voters that are kind of the byproduct of, of uh, you know, surging state, state sales tax and uh, income tax revenues. Yeah, when he talked about the, the shape our state is in, you know, he said, quote, our bills are paid. Our most pressing short-term debts are nearly gone. Pritzker's calling for $1 billion in tax cuts, Dave. What does that mean for Illinois families exactly? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a symbolic gesture, clearly. I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, when you're talking about a $45 billion budget, as, as the governor laid out here, you know, a billion dollars or a little under that is, is uh, it, it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But, you know, for, for somebody who's going to the grocery store and spending $200 uh, on a weekly grocery bill, 
you know, they would wind up saving about $2 under the plan he lays out here to freeze the, the 1% grocery tax. And it's the same way with, with gasoline taxes here. There was a 2.3% a increase that was due to kick in on July 1st, and he's suspending that, or he wants to suspend it. And so you know what the, the price of gas is, and you can do the math. And, and you're, you're talking a few cents at the gallon here that, that would matter. But again, it's a symbolic act. And, and remember, two years ago, uh, the governor was, was out uh, bankrolling an effort to try to change the way the, the state uh, does its, its income tax. He wanted to go to a graduated income tax and uh, put that on the ballot before voters, and it lost. But it, the whole point behind that was he thought that that was what was necessary to stabilize state finances. And Republicans in this election are going to be probably going back to that moment in time and, and pointing to Pritzker and saying, look, here's a governor who wanted to increase your taxes. But in the speech today, what he, he kind of, I think, laid out was a rebuttal to that. And, and that is that, you know, look, I'm offering tax relief, tax cuts to people. And so, you know, that's going to be an important kind of uh, defensive maneuver, I guess you could say, that, that he will probably trot out repeatedly on the campaign trail as we move toward November. Dave, let's hear now from some GOP lawmakers. I want to bring another voice to the conversation. Joining us now is Republican State Senator Darren Bailey. He represents the Southeastern 55th District. Hi, Senator Bailey. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for making the time. Tell us, first of all, your reaction to the governor's speech. Oh, gosh, I sat for the last hour just, uh, I mean, sickened and appalled that the people of Illinois, anyone, might buy into this nonsense, uh, proposing tax relief with tax dollars that have to be paid back either state or federally, uh, proposing short-term solutions again with with our very own tax money that, uh, as the speaker uh, addressed just before, uh, that's not going to offer any long-term substance at all. People are leaving the state for everything that Governor Pritzker talked about, but he had absolutely no solutions. So what were you looking to hear, Senator, that perhaps you didn't? Well, I think I heard exactly what I was uh, uh, expecting, uh, but... Uh, you know, I, I want to see a shrink in government. I want to see true long-term tax relief. I want to see our schools, you know, truly rescued instead of just throwing more money at the problem, letting local units of government, you know, decide what they are going to do and how they're going to, to operate rather than a, an overarching government telling them what to do. And then ultimately, yeah, I want to see our, our, our state, you know, honor uh, law enforcement, uh, men and women who, who are, you know, leaving and, and, and just being diminished every day. Uh, people aren't going to live and, and, and function and flourish in a state when there is no law and order. And, uh, and I just heard, a, I just saw a circus dance around all of that. Senator Bailey, uh, you're, of course, one of five Republicans who have declared their candidacy to run for governor this year against, uh, against Pritzker. And I guess what I'm kind of wondering is on this, this tax relief component that was in his speech today. I mean, I've, for as long as I've been following politics, Republicans have always kind of stood for uh, tax cuts and tax relief. I mean, do you think that this is an issue here where, where it would be a smart play for Republicans to try to maybe ask for more than what he's proposing here? I mean, are you satisfied with the amount that he's laid out here? 
No, I, I see nothing, uh, you know, a, a larger budget, uh, you know, borrowed money. What, the real question is, what are we going to do when the Biden bucks run out? I mean, this is a hollow story in and of itself. There is nothing here uh, that, that offers any substantial relief. It's a lot of money thrown out. It's a lot of it's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, that really goes against everything that he's he spoke for, stood up for, and tried to accomplish for the last three years. That's what I find so appalling about it. I mean, what kind of openings does this give you on the campaign trail to run against Governor Pritzker? I mean, some of the points he made here. What 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 are some of the points that you you intend to, to try to use against him out of this speech? As I sat and listened uh, to his speech, I hear actually a lot of my talking points. So, uh, you know, the proof is in uh, what we accomplish. And that's actually, you know, over the last uh, 20 plus years of, of Democrat rule in Illinois, and especially for the for our friends in Chicago, uh, the, the, the question is simple. Are we better off or, or, or are we worse off? And, and I, people are leaving the state. They're leaving the city of Chicago. They are burdened. So to sit here and try to be wooed by uh, this nonsense of just temporary saving a few cents here and there for the average working family out there. I think this is an actual slap in the face for everyone. So, you know, my, my, it's, it's really simple. Just look back at, at what this man has accomplished, what he has stood for. And here we sit in a re-election year, and he's going to tell us that he paints a completely different per, uh, picture saying that everything's going to be better. Uh, it's a really simple message. We've just got to keep it in front of the people of Illinois so that they don't forget. And they will not forget every day they go to the grocery store, every day they go to the gas station, every day their children go to school, and every day they go out in the community wondering what going to happen because of the lack of law enforcement. State Senator. Senator, quickly follow up here, uh, just very quickly. I mean, you know, he talked about suspending the, the 1% tax on food, and he talked about this, uh, this sales tax on the, or this uh, motor fuel tax increase that's due to kick in. But, but the caveat is, in both those cases, th- those savings would last for one year. I mean, would you advocate, for example, making those kinds of cuts permanent? Absolutely. We have got to roll back and do something. We've simply got to reprioritize government. We've got to reprioritize our budget. And it can certainly be done. Let's say when I got involved in this journey and in 2018, you know, we were coming off of a $34 billion budget. And today we're staring a $45 billion budget in the face with over $30 billion of just new tax money infused into our economy over the last three and four years, and what do we have to show for it? Absolutely nothing. State Senator Darren Bailey, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you for yours. Have a wonderful day and be safe. Dave, your thoughts on on what we just heard from the state senator? Well, I mean, it certainly gives you a flavor of how Republicans are are, are intending to, to, to dive into this speech and, and pull out things that, that really they think advances their their, their narrative that, that Pritzker has been an ineffective governor. But, but you know, and I, I think, you know, in, ta- in, in recognizing where, where Bailey is in the pecking order here, I mean, you know, he, he, he has a, a significant following downstate. And, and of course, you know, the, there are other candidates in this race, but, but you know, he, Bailey is going to be a player in this campaign. So I think hearing him talk about, for example, that this tax relief maybe didn't go far enough, that it ought to be extended permanently. You know, I think that's something that we might start hearing from him and maybe others about, you know, did this tax relief go far enough? I mean, it was interesting hearing him call it kind of a slap in the face against working families. What are the next steps in the budget process? 
Well, I mean, this spring, we're kind of on a really truncated schedule in Springfield. I mean, they're scheduled to, to be in session until early April. I believe it's the 8th. And, and they've already missed a bunch of days so far because, I mean, today's example was the, 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 the storm, but they've missed a lot of days because of the pandemic. So they're going to really kind of put this budget plan on a fast track. And, you know, we're going to be hearing this afternoon probably from the, the Democratic leaders in the House and Senate. I would imagine that they're going to be, you know, full bore in favor of this because, you know, a lot of the polling nationally shows that, that, that Republicans are in a really strong position to make mm-hmm. gains in Congress and in state houses across the country. So Democrats are going to want some sort of, you know, thing to take to voters to kind of demonstrate that, look, we, we've got our, we, we've got your back. And, and there were things in the speech that, I think rank-and-file Democrats, as they go on the campaign trail themselves, could, could point to, especially in the economic messaging with inflation the way it is, that they, that they would be able to at least say, hey, we, we, we work to get you some tax relief. Since it's an election year, were any parts of the governor's speech aimed at independents or other voters who might be on the fence about Pritzker? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, there was a section of his speech later into it where, where you know, he talked, uh, he, he made a lot of references, of course, to, to the pandemic. But it was interesting. He talked about in one sequence where, uh, you, you know, he talked about uh, uh, voting laws and how Illinois wasn't going to succumb to Jim Crow uh, uh, standards that we've seen in other states that, that, you know, are trying to restrict voter rights. And we, we, we heard him talk about uh, uh, how Illinois, under his watch, has positioned itself to guarantee uh, uh, the rights to abortion for women. And, and so that, that, you know, regardless of whether the Supreme Court strikes down Roe versus Wade, Illinois is in a position to keep abortion rights intact. And so he's, he's pointing to that. And, and uh, you know, women are so important in the election, uh, especially in the collar counties. That message could, could drive home with them. So, and, and, and again, on the pandemic, you know, his, his uh, several bouquets that he threw to, threw to the uh, to healthcare workers, uh, and, and again, kind of an endorsement of science. He just kept talking about, you know, we believe in science in Illinois. So, I mean, I think those are all messages that, that no doubt appeal to independents. He, he won the collar counties convincingly yeah. uh, in his last election. And I think that's what he's trying to do here with this speech. Just a few seconds here to go. Dave, what will you be watching for in the coming days and weeks? Well, I mean, it's, you know, if, if Democrats want to want to tweak this in some way, that's certainly something to, to look at. I mean, Republicans are in super minority status in both the House and Senate in Springfield. So they really don't, you know, aside from long floor speeches and, and the like, they don't have any real political clout in Springfield to stop any of this. Yeah. So if the governor and speaker and, and Senate president are in lockstep, this thing, I think, will move fairly quickly. And, and, and then they'll all turn toward the campaign trail. That's WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Sasha. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.